In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So last week, we looked at what the liturgy is. Liturgy as the work of the people, liturgy as an entrance to the kingdom, as an icon of the kingdom, etc. We also looked at the prayers of preparation for the priest. But if we look at page 101, which is the first page of the liturgy after Matins, if we just look where it says the hymn of blessing, which is the first thing that we say at the beginning of the liturgy. It says, We worship the Father of light and His only begotten Son and the Spirit, the Paraclete, the Trinity, one in essence. So last week I asked you to put a triangle in your liturgy book whenever you found a reference to the Holy Trinity. If you look at it, the first thing that the congregation says in the whole liturgy is a glorification to the Holy Trinity. If you look at the Coptic liturgy, nearly all the time, there's a glorification of the Holy Trinity, either on the priest's part or on the people's part, which tells us something about what we're doing in the liturgy. Everything that we're doing in the liturgy is to glorify the Holy Trinity. Okay? So if we're going to glorify the Holy Trinity, we have to pray the prayers, not just say them. So look out for any glorification to the Holy Trinity today. There are many instances of it. Following that, there's the hymn, um, which we say to the Virgin Mary, then, O King of Peace, of Oro and Tetihirini, could be said. And then we said the priest, on page 104, praised the prayers of preparation, and we commented on those last week, and we showed how the priest um, prepares the altar. And then he says the prayer after preparation. And then we went straight into the washing of the hands. Before the washing of the hands, there is the prayers of the Agbeya, or the hours, or formerly known as the Horologion. There's a table that I've given you on your first page. It tells you the order that we pray the hours during the liturgy. So on Sunday, in the liturgy, we only do the third and the sixth hour. And if it's a non-fasting day. Why? Because if it's a non-fasting day, the liturgy is in the morning, it's at most the sixth hour, so that's all we pray in the Agbeya. If it's Lent or Jonas fast or the Paramon, so Paramon is the day before Christmas or Epiphany. So the Feast of Nativity this year is Friday night because they, the feast is the 7th of January on Saturday. So the day before, the 6th, that's called the Paramon day. And that day, there's an early liturgy and we pray all the hours of the Agbeya from the 3rd till the 12th. Why? Because Jonah's fast, the Great Lent, the Paramon liturgy, or Paramon days, they're days where the liturgy is supposed to be prayed late. So, for example, in Great Lent, we fast late until about sunset. Sunset is about the 12th hour. That's when we have the liturgy. So we pray all the hours of the Agbeya. Other fasting days like we are today in Advent, in Advent, it's not as strict fast as Lent. We don't fast until sunset usually until about 3 p.m., which is the ninth hour. So that's why the Agbeya prayers go up to the ninth hour. So I thought I'll just put that there in a, in a little uh, table there. Just in case you come to the liturgy and you're wondering why sometimes they pray more hours of the Agbeya than others. So in Lent, if you come, you'll find that the Agbeya prayers go for a very long time because we do all the hours up to the twelfth hour because the liturgy is supposed to be late. Now, if you remember as well, in Lent, there's no Vespers. Monday to Friday, there's no Vespers. Why? 
Vespers revolves around the 11th hour of the Agbeya. If you've already prayed the 11th hour of the Agbeya in the liturgy, then there's no Vespers. There's nothing to pray. So in Lent, we have no Vespers. Okay? Now, at the top of your handout, I've given some definitions. Father Alexander Shmemen wrote these. On Amin and Alleluia. Amin means so be it. So when the priest or the congregation says a prayer, and then everyone at the end says Amin, it's like we're saying, what you just said, let it be. Let it be true, it is true. We'll just read. This is a solemn acknowledgement and acceptance by the people of God of the reality, the truth, the strength of what God has done and is still doing. Each prayer, each exclamation and liturgical act are sealed by this Amin of the people. And one can truly say that a Christian is the one who has the right to say Amen, that is to receive and to make his own what God gives him in the church. At the end of the liturgy, we say Amen, we believe. Amen, we believe what? That this is the body and the blood of Christ. At the end of the creed, the last word that you say is Amen, which means I believe that everything I just said, let it be. So in the creed, if we just said one Lord Jesus Christ, that means I believe that he is one Lord Jesus Christ, he's my Lord. So when I'm out of the church, when I leave the liturgy, my life should be one of someone who believes that Jesus is Lord. Then we have Alleluia, which in free translation means God is here, praise him. It's a joyful exclamation of those who see and experience the presence of God. One of the key words of the liturgy because it reveals the very nature of worship to bring us into the presence of God. So like we said last week, what we're doing here is to enter into the presence of God, to enter into the presence of the Holy Trinity. That's why throughout the whole liturgy, you hear glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit or words similar. Okay? So we spoke about the prayer of preparation. Then after it, the priest um, says the praise of the hours, he washes his hands. That's what we got up to last week. Now we get up to the offering of the Lamb. Okay? Um... Maybe turn the page to the offertory. We'll talk about the priest and the bishop in a second. So let's talk about the offertory of the lamb. So if I could just get um, three, maybe three boys. So what we'll do so everyone could see is we're usually standing up at the sanctuary. We'll just kneel so you could have a bird's eye view. And if you want to stand up to see, that would be nice. So what happens is the um, oblations, the gifts are ready, the bread and the wine. We'll talk about what all this means after we see what happens. So they're ready. They have to be ready before the Agbeya is prayed, before the hours are prayed. The Psalms need to be prayed over. And then one deacon holds the uh, oblation, the bread in the basket in front of the priest. So we'll make that Joe. Yes. Joey. So Joey will hold it. So maybe you could just stand there and face the... Uh, yeah, fresh they are fresh. Yeah. Maybe just kneel so everyone could see us. Okay. And then next to him on either side, we have the other gifts. So we have the wine. So Sam could hold the wine. Usually they're, they're crossing their hands because he's holding a candle in the left and this in the right. If he's standing like this, he might knock a bone or a bone and needs to take the wine from him. So he crosses his hands for ease of access. And then on the other side, there's a jug or a little container of water. Okay. The crossing is practical. And the priest, I'm not going to set up the altar like we had it set up last week. But if you remember, there was a, a corporal, a veil, 
on the pattern, on the plate. Okay? The priest takes that, he folds it, and he just puts it in his sleeve. Okay? Okay? So, meanwhile, meanwhile, the people are saying, we exalt you, Mother of Shulite, the introduction to the creed and the creed. Why? Because in the Agbaya, that's the last thing that you say. Before you say the 41, Lord have mercies, which is what we're going to say now. The pre- so if you, wanna, if you can't see, feel free to come up and stand around so you can see because you're going to miss some of the stuff that's happening. So I'll just kneel so everyone could see. Okay, so the priest comes out and he exclaims, We ask you, O Lamb of God, who carries the sin of the world. Everyone can see us? Everyone can see? Okay, that's fine. Sim, you could see. Come. Sure. Don't be shy. Okay. So the priest comes out of the sanctuary and he exclaims, we ask you to listen to these words carefully. O Lamb of God, he's the word Lamb, who carries the sin of the world, hear us and have mercy upon us. And then everyone says, Lord, have mercy. He grabs the wine. He holds it up against the light. Makes sure it's clean. It's pure. There's no sediment in it. If he's not happy with it, he could return it. He then smells it. Make sure it's not off. It hasn't turned into vinegar. It actually is wine because maybe someone poured something by accident. So he smells it. He gives it to the person in front of him, the deacon in front of him, who should say, if it is good, he'll say it's good and honorable. Okay? So if deacons, please make sure you know that. But sometimes deacons say some other things when they're confused. (laughs) And then he gives it to the other deacons. So, smell good and honourable. If he's okay, once he's happy with that, once he's happy with that, with the wine, he can continue. So, do you remember last week when the deacons and the priest have their vestments to be blessed? The priest blesses them in the name of the Holy Trinity. Going to do exactly the same. He puts the wine uh, cruet over the the bread. Goes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Blessed is God the Father, the Pantocrator, Amen. First cross and second cross. Blessed is only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. Blessed is the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, Amen. Glory and honor, honor and glory to the All Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore and unto the ages of ages, Amen. So what's he just done? He's blessed the gifts, and I'll talk about why they're called gifts, in the name of the Holy Trinity. And then he says the same prayer, and different books have different rubrics, but at the end of that, he does say this prayer over the Lamb. He says the same prayer that he said at the end of the prayer after preparation. He says, Grant, O Lord, that this sacrifice may be accepted before you for my own sins, my own sins, and for the ignorance of your people. For behold, it is pure according to the gift of your Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus our Lord, etc., as we saw last week. So he points at himself for my own sins, for the ignorance of your, of, his, of your people. My sins, ignorance, which means I don't have an excuse. You don't know better, but I don't have an excuse. I'm the bad person here. My sins, ignorance. That's why I say I want to do this. Okay? And then it's a time when he remembers anyone who he wants to remember, especially if someone goes to him, Abuna, could you please remember me at the offering? So sometimes Abuna will stop for a second and he'll remember names. Some priests point at different people just to, to remember their names. Etc. 
He then puts the cross down, crosses his right hand over his left, like Isaac when he came to bless Jacob, and says, may the Lord choose for himself a lamb without blemish. And then he picks it up. Okay? So what's he looking for? He's looking for the most perfect oblation. So he examines the two. Okay? He always wants the more superior one in his right hand. So he looks. If the superior one is this one, he'll cross over. Keep it in his right hand. And then he'll look here. Okay? This one's better. That one's better. Or this one's better, so he'll put it over like can this. You, can you explain what you're looking for? Everyone? So what we're looking for is the most perfect oblation, the most perfect offering. So perfectly circular, baked evenly. The stamp is clear. The five holes are clear. We could explain what all this means in a second. There's no cracks. There's no blemishes. The best one. If the priest is very unhappy with all of the oblations, he can't ask for them to be baked again. But thankfully, because... <laughs> Because our bread or uh, oblation makers are in Bethlehem really take care of it, we, get, we usually get very nice orban. So the bread is, or the oblation is baked in a place which we call Bethlehem. Once he chooses the lamb, he uh, grabs the veil, wipes any excess flour, okay? And he puts the oblation on his left hand. I forgot to say something. The number of oblations in the basket needs to be an odd number. Three, five, seven, etc. Why different contemplations? I heard it has to be an odd so that there is no pair. So for example, there was five in this basket. I now took out one. The remaining four each have a pair. But this lamb is unique. Some people say three for the Holy Trinity, five for the five sacrifices in the Old Testament, seven for the five sacrifices and the two doves that need to be bought if one was a leper. Different contemplations, but we know it needs to be an odd number. So, he's got the lamb here. He then grabs the wine cruet, dips his finger in a little bit of the wine. I could stand up for this part. And then he crosses and he says, a sacrifice of glory... And then over the remaining four, he crosses one, a sacrifice of blessing, crosses the next, a sacrifice of Abraham, the next, Isaac, the next, Jacob. Then he, at the bottom, a sacrifice of Melchizedek. We'll talk about why all this in a second. Once he's finished, he takes his cross and he proceeds back to the altar. Okay, we'll just stop there. Thanks, boys. So if there's, if there's more than four, if there's more than four, let's say we had seven and we chose one, there's six, he would still cross them all, but say those four, sacrifice of blessing, sacrifice of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and at the bottom of the one that he chose, the back, he would say sacrifice of Melchizedek. So what you just saw there is called the offertory. Okay? So the liturgy is split into two parts. The first half is called the Liturgy of the Word or the Liturgy of the Catechumens. In the olden days, anyone could attend that part of the liturgy. All it was was the readings and the sermon. There was no offertory in this part. And then at one point after the sermon, the deacon would yell out, the doors, the doors, which is a signal for the people that are not baptized, the people that are not the believers, not the faithful, the catechumens, those being prepared for baptism, to leave. 
Because the remaining of the litur- remainder of the liturgy is for those who believe. Because you're going to say the creed and you'll partake of the holy sacraments. So then one leaves and the subdeacon will close the door. The um, circumstances changed um, in terms of presence of catechumens, etc. So the order of the liturgy changed slightly. What used to happen is that this part of the offertory used to happen after the, um, the sermon. I'm not sure exactly when, but we know it was part of the liturgy of the faithful. If you remember, in greet one another with a holy kiss, the deacon says, offer, offer, offer in order. It's a very random phrase to say at that point in the liturgy, which means that there must have been something happening with the offering at that point. Offer, offer, offer in order. But now, this part of the liturgy, the offertory, is at the beginning. Originally, it used to be after those who are not baptized have left. Now, in the early church, everyone had to bring an offering. Bread, wine, a gift to the church. If one couldn't afford something, there was a water fountain outside and you would bring a cup of water in. Everyone had to bring an offering. Okay? Now, we're just going to do a little bit of a rewind to the offering of incense matins. If you could please open to page... 28. Everyone with me so far? Okay, so this was just called the offertory. It's at the beginning of the liturgy. It used to be after the um, catechumens left. The catechumens are those who are being instructed in the faith until they're baptized. But now it's moved at the beginning. It's a very important part of the liturgy. We're going to spend some time talking about this concept of offering, offering, gift, sacrifice. It's very, very important to our understanding of the liturgy. In matins, which is the prayer before, or the service before the liturgy, there is a beautiful litany called the litany of the sacrifices, or the litany of the oblations. Unless you come to matins, you won't hear it. It has a beautiful tune in Coptic. If you get a chance to download it, highly recommend it. It's beautiful. Let's read it. So, page 28. The priest says, We ask and entreat your goodness, a lover of mankind. Remember, O Lord, the sacrifices, so the sacrifices that people have offered, the offerings and the thanksgiving of those who have offered to the honor and glory of your name. Then the deacon says to the people, he gives them an instruction, he says, pray for those who provide for the the sacrifices, offerings, first fruits, oil, incense, coverings, reading books and altar vessels. So anyone who gives an offering to the church that Christ our God may reward them in the heavenly Jerusalem and forgive us our sins. Obviously, over time, with the expansion of the church, it's very impractical for people to all walk in with bread and wine and flour. So the offerings that we give are still done in in the gifts that we give to the church, in our donations. So that's part of the offering. At the same time, though, I still think it's very nice if we pay attention to this text and think about other offerings that we could give specific to the sanctuary. Okay? So, for example, the deacon said incense. There's nothing wrong with one of us buying some incense, making sure that it's good quality for church, and it's the same incense that we use at church, and giving it to Abuna as an offering, because there's a prayer for you right now. It's great if you, if you have a chance to buy something for the sanctuary, uh, altar curtain, the veil, one of the veils for the sanctuary, anything that they need for the altar, if, if the church ever needs it, I highly recommend you jump up at the opportunity because of this prayer. Then look at what the priest says. Receive them, 
upon your holy rational altar in heaven as a sweet savour of incense before your greatness in the heavens through the service of your holy angels and archangels. As you have received the gifts of the righteous Abel, the sacrifice of our father Abraham, and the two mites of the widow, so also receive the thank offering of your servants, those in abundance or those in scarcity, hidden or manifest. Why is it a thank offering? Because everything that we have is from God. We give it back to God and we say thank you. Later in the liturgy, and we'll get to that in a few weeks, we offer unto you these gifts from what is yours. Everything that we have belongs to God. We're giving it back to Him. Look what he says. Those in abundance or those in scarcity. So if someone had a lot and he still gave, please accept it. And if someone didn't have much and they still gave, please accept it. Hidden or manifest. Even if someone didn't realize, even if I didn't, the priest is praying, even if I don't know that he handed it in, that he gave a gift, please reward them. Next page. Something beautiful. Those who desire to offer to you but have none. So those who really want to give a gift but they actually have nothing to give. And those who have offered these gifts to you this very day. Then a beautiful few paragraphs of promises. Give them the incorruptible instead of the corruptible, the heavenly instead of the earthly, and the eternal instead of the temporal. Like we said last week, our eye is focused here, not here. But at the same time, their houses and their stores, fill them with every good thing. Surround them, O Lord, by the power of your holy angels and archangels. As they have remembered your holy name on earth, remember them also, O Lord, in your kingdom, and in this age too, leave them not behind. I think it's one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole liturgy, specific to those who offer sacrifices, offer oblations, offer gifts to the church. Of course, it's considering anyone who's ever offered any donation to the church, but I still think it's good practice to bring something for the sanctuary. Yeah, at the same time, it's like the priest is saying, we're focused on heaven, but at the same time, bless them here on earth. Okay? So this is the prayer that we say in Matins, on Sundays, or if the oblations are there. Okay? Now let's go back to the offertory. We're on page uh, 110. Okay. So let's talk about the offertory. There's a, a bit here, to be honest, but I think it's really important that we understand what's happening at this offertory, because this is a very important part of the liturgy. In some Orthodox traditions, this part of the liturgy is done in a very elaborate ceremony, very solemn ceremony. Okay. So the offertory, as you could see in your handout, so where we have the heading, the offertory, is the sacrificial act of the church offering, offering to God the oblations of our lives. A passage by Father Alexander Schmemann again. A sacrifice is the natural movement of love, which is the gift of oneself, a self-denial for the sake of the other. When I love somebody, my life is in him whom I love. I give him my life freely, willingly, joyfully, and this giving away becomes the very meaning of my life. Okay? As Christians, we're called to sacrifice. Christ sacrificed himself as a sacrifice of love. This perfect life as love, and therefore as sacrifice, he gave to all who accept him and believe in him, restoring in them the initial relationship with God. So through Christ's sacrifice of love, where he gave up himself, we have restored, he has restored the relationship that we had with God. 
the life of the church and this life of the church is his life in us and our life in him. So the life of the church is our life in Christ and Christ's life in us. Thus is necessarily a sacrificial life. The same way that God sacrificed, we have to sacrifice. An eternal movement of love toward God. The essential attitude and the essential act of the church, which is the new humanity restored by Christ, is therefore the Eucharist. So the essential thing that we do as a church is the Eucharist. Why? Because it's an act of love, thanksgiving and sacrifice. The bread and the wine stand for us. That is, for our life. For the whole of our existence, for the entire world created by God for us. They are our food and our food makes us live. It is that which becomes our body. So the bread and the wine become our body. So when we offer the bread and the wine, what are we saying? Let's read. By offering it to God, by sacrificing it to Him, we show that our life is given away to Him and we follow, that we follow Christ our head in His movement of total love and sacrifice. So the same way God gave His life for us, we need to give our lives for Him. How do we do that? We do that in our day-to-day lives. And its pinnacle is here in the liturgy where we have the offering. We offer the bread and the wine, food, which we eat, which becomes us. It's like we're saying we're offering us, our whole lives. Now, one could also look at that as a personal reflection and say, have I offered my whole life to God? Now, offering my whole life to God does not mean I'm going to become a monk or nun. It has nothing to do with those things specifically. You could offer your life to God as a busy mum, as a busy dad, as a young guy or girl studying or working, as a little child, as an elderly person. Everyone can offer their whole life to God regardless of their circumstances. So this is what the offertory is about. It's about sacrifice offering. Last paragraph. Let us stress again. Our sacrifice in the Eucharist is not distinct from that of Christ. It's not a new sacrifice. Christ offered himself once and for all, and his sacrifice being full and perfect makes any new sacrifice needless. In the Old Testament, they had to do a lot of sacrifices, but Christ's sacrifice is perfect and eternal. There's no need for another sacrifice. But it is precisely the meaning of our Eucharistic offering that in it we are given the priceless possibility of entering in Christ's sacrifices or being participants in his unique offering of himself to God. So God has already offered himself as a sacrifice. There's no need for any more sacrifices. But we're so lucky as Christians that we get to participate in this sacrifice. There's no need to do the Old Testament sacrifices anymore. Okay? Just bear with me. I know it's a little bit heavy, but bear with me. Or in other terms... His unique and perfect sacrifice has made it possible for us, the church and his body, to be restored and readmitted into the fullness of true humanity, the sacrifice of praise and love. This is important. The one who has not understood this sacrificial character of the Eucharist, who has come to receive but not to give, has not accepted the very spirit of the church, which is above everything else the acceptance of and the participation in Christ's sacrifice. When I read that, I think of, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Take up your cross and follow me. We are not here to take, we are here to give. Thus, in the procession of offertory, our very life is being brought to the altar, presented to God in an act of love and adoration. 
Okay, so I know there's a lot there. Take, ho- take it home, have a read of it again. It really changes how you approach the liturgy. And when we, when we talk about the offertory like this, no wonder the church always says, please come to the liturgy from the beginning. This is a huge deal. This used to be preserved only for those who are baptized, this offertory. This is a huge deal. It's not a part of the liturgy that we could skip. We spoke about this last week. One of the worst questions anyone could ask is, what time is the gospel? The question is, what time is the offertory? I want to be here five minutes before, if we're serious. This is huge. And when I understand what the offertory is about, when the priest is offering, when the church is offering the gifts and the priest is choosing the lamb, it's a beautiful time for me to re-offer my life to God and to tell God, God, I'm here. Take everything. Take me and all my stuff. I'm all yours. Show me what you want me to do with my life. That openness to God allows us to hear what he wants to tell us, what he wants to tell us individually. Now, if you remember, we had five in the basket. Let's stick to five because of the five crossings of the wine on the bread, on the oblation, okay? We said they could remind us of the five sacrifices of the Old Testament. The thing is with the sacrifices of the Old Testament is none of them were good enough. They always had to be repeated. All those sacrifices are pointing towards one sacrifice. What sacrifice is that? Christ's sacrifice. So all the Old Testament sacrifices are pointing, they're a signpost to the ultimate sacrifice. Now the ultimate sacrifices here, there's no need to do the others. Now, let's connect that. Oh, give me a second. We'll connect that in a second. I just want to read one more thing before we come back to Melchizedek. Okay? So if you just turn the page or under the heading Father Tadros Malati. All right. These sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, were symbols of the unique sacrifice, that is, that of the cross, for the Lamb of God who carries our sins and disobedience and pays the price. He is the only one who can pay, redeem, intercede, and resurrect us. So all the other sacrifices were temporal. They, they were not good enough. They were all pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. We can see this sacrifice of Christ hidden in all the history of God's dealings with man. The patriarchs saw it through the symbols and rejoiced. Moses saw it through the law and God's actions with his people. The prophets foresaw it in their prophecies. The sacrifice of the Eucharist is essentially an act of love in which Christ gives himself totally to God, his Father, on our behalf. And what's our response? We also, in his name, offer ourselves totally. How? Through our unity with him as his own body. If we truly believe that, then we'll be here from the beginning of the liturgy. In other words, by the offertory... The church declares the practical acceptance of her bridegroom's cross, which is the ladder to heaven. For we offer not only bread and wine or money, but also our needs, our joys, our sorrows, our hopes, our ambitions, and our hardships. We must bring them all to the altar, the cross of Christ, at the offertory, and lay our hearts upon the pattern, which is the plate, and our life into the chalice, so that we may participate in his suffering and his sacrifice. And that's why you see a lot of our parents and some of us young people, always give papers at the beginning of the liturgy with the names of people that they want to pray for during this time. So that's why sometimes 
I'll show you what happens after the priest enters with the lamb in the, in the sanctuary. But sometimes he stops for a second and he's reading the names of people who have asked him to pray. And it's a beautiful practice to do. Think of all the people you want to pray for, write their names on a piece of paper, hand it to the deacon who puts it on the sanctuary, and Abuna will read it and offer their name as part of the offering. Now, Abuna Tadus Malati said something beautiful, and a little fun fact, Abuna Tadus Malati served at this church, at St. Mary's Church in the 70s. I was actually at a library in, um, in, uh, in Parkville, in the liturgy section, and I found like a really ancient book by Bunatadus Malati on the Eucharist. He must have given it to them in the 70s um, when he was here. It was awesome. He says, we offer our joys, our sorrows, our hopes, our ambitions, our hardships. So when we enter the liturgy, we come in with all the burden of the whole week. All of us has our problems, our inner battles, our struggles. But when we come to the liturgy, we take them and we put them on the altar. There was one priest... I heard the story of a priest who, whenever anyone came up to him with a problem, he wrote it on, his, on a piece of paper, took off his aimah, his hat, and he put it in the little fold of his aimah. And then when it came to the liturgy, he would take off his aimah, take out all the papers, have a stack this thick, put them on the altar, and say, God, deal with it. Pope Crawlers had the same approach. Pope Crawlers with prayer. Why is Pope Crawlers a saint? Not because of the miracles. If he didn't know miracles, he would still be a saint, because he was a man of prayer. You've all heard of Abuna Raphael, his disciple. He said once there was a Holy Synod meeting, all the bishops, and Pope Crawlers got up, and he walked out and went straight to church. And everyone's like, where are you going? He goes, Vespers. It's Vespers. Of course I'm going to Vespers. I'm missing Vespers. That's why he's a saint. He's a man of prayer. So the same way we come to liturgy, and we, we, in the beginning we go to God, look God, I've got all these sorrows, all these tribulations, I've got all this joy and gratitude I now offer it to you. In the Coptic church, Ethiopian church, I'm not sure about the Syrian church, we take off our shoes before the... Um, sure, sh- 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 I'll just say the shoe part. We take off our shoes in the sanctuary, and some, uh, some churches, they take off their shoes outside of the church. If you remember St. Moses, uh, Moses the prophet, um, at the burning bush... He was told to take off his shoes because it's on holy ground. St. Gregory of Nyssa says that shoes were made out of leather. Leather is a dead product. It's like when approaching God, remove everything that's dead, a.k.a. everything from the world. Leave it and come. So if you're not serving the sanctuary and you like the idea, when you're spot, take off your shoes as a reminder to yourself and saying, everything from the world I've left out there. All my troubles I've left up there. I'm here to pray in inverted commas, naked in front of God. Okay? Some, some priests leave it on the because they could build up some priests leave it on the altar for a while and then they remove them. It depends, like, where I pray, we have a, a drawer at the back of the altar, so I just take them off and put them in the drawer and just leave them in there. And the drawer hasn't got full yet, so ask, ask me when it gets full. <laughs> Does it Of course, it's nice to pray for them, but I also think it's nice to put it on the altar. The, the whole physical act of writing down someone's name and getting the priest to include it in the prayers, I think, is, I think is nice. So this is all about the offering, okay? Do you remember 
so we, saw, we spoke about Christ's sacrifice, his offering. We participate in the offering. We give God our life, our lives. We give gifts, money, bread, wine, water, etc. We give our time to church. We also give him our joys, our sorrows, everything that's troubling us. We give it to God. There's a paragraph there by Father Alexander Schmemann, which I'll leave you to read on your own. Now, other points. The sacrifice, the Eucharist, is a rational, spiritual, and bloodless sacrifice. What I mean by rational, animals are irrational creatures. In the Old Testament, you offered an animal. An irrational creature, which means they're, sacri- they're not rational, they don't have the faculty of rational thinking like we do. They're sacrificed against their will. And indeed, they're sacrificed without understanding the significance of what's happening. Christ's sacrifice is different. He's a rational creature. He was sacrificed at his own will. That's why we call this sacrifice a rational, spiritual, bloodless sacrifice. It's without the shedding of blood, the Eucharist. The next point, the Old Testament sacrifice point to the sacrifice of Christ, who is the only true sacrifice. We said that. And the third part is about the bloodless, rational, true and eternal sacrifice. Okay, a few quotes there. I'm not going to read the first one. I want to read the second and the third. Second one by Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, 258 AD. Whence it appears that the blood of Christ is not offered, if there be no wine in the cup, nor the Lord's sacrifice celebrated with a legitimate consecration, unless our oblations and sacrifice respond to his passion. For if Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, is himself the chief priest, underline that or highlight it, of God the Father, and has first offered himself a sacrifice to the Father, and has commanded this to be done in commemoration of himself, Certainly that priest truly discharges the, highlight this, office of Christ, who imitates that which Christ did. So the priest does what Christ did at the Last Supper. And he offers then a true and full sacrifice in the church to God the Father when he proceeds to offer it according to what he sees Christ himself to have offered. I put this for those two things that I asked you to highlight, which we refer to, but also to show from the beginning of the church we've had this understanding of the priest, the church offers the same way that Christ did. And you'll see later on that the priest pretty much does exactly what Christ did in the Last Supper. St. John Chrysostom. What then? Do we not offer daily? So don't we have a liturgy daily? Yes, we offer. But making remembrance of his death, and this remembrance is one and not many. How is it one and not many? So he's trying to say it's not like we're offering, in the Old Testament you offer one sheep today, another sheep tomorrow, a third sheep the third day. Are we offering one Christ today, another Christ in a hundred years? And another Christ at St. Anthony's time? He's saying, of course not. One Christ, one ultimate sacrifice. Because this sacrifice is offered once, like that in the Holy of Holies, Old Testament reference. This sacrifice is a type of that, so pointing to that. We offer always the same, not one sheep now and another tomorrow, but the same thing always. Thus, there is one sacrifice. By this reasoning, since the sacrifice is offered everywhere, so here, Fiji, Egypt, America, And there then, a multiplicity of Christ? No, of course not. By no means. Christ is one everywhere. He is complete here, complete there. One body. And just as he is one body and not many offered everywhere, so too is there one sacrifice. So as a church, we commune of Christ. It is the same Christ that everyone has always communed of. So we're all one church. Last part, I won't read this. Sunday Theotokia references to Christ as a sacrifice. 
um, just there for you to look at. Okay, the last thing about the offering. Just bear with me for the offering here. Now, if you remember, the book of Hebrews, St. Paul talks a lot about Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Do you remember? Old Testament. Book of Genesis. Let's read. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Old Testament, okay? This is before the priesthood of Aaron. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Then in Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Where do you hear that psalm? In a normal liturgy, so if you came on Sunday, you wouldn't hear the name Melchizedek. But something has to happen for you to hear the name Melchizedek, the bishop. When the bishop is here, they say, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Why? It's important, we'll talk about that. First, let's look at a few things about Melchizedek. Five things. Melchizedek, we don't know much about him. No genealogy. And nothing is said of his death. He is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continuously. He's a priest forever. Not like the ironic priesthood. One dies, you get another priest. It's temporal. His name is translated King of Righteousness, meaning King of Peace. The biblical references are all there. He receives tithes from our father Abraham, implying that he is superior to Abraham in rank, and by extension, superior to Abraham's descendants, the Levites. So he's superior to the priesthood of Aaron um, of, in, in the Old Testament and the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is temporary. Since it's composed of mortal men, it requires many members. Since Christ is immortal, the priesthood of Melchizedek needs only one eternal priest. Highlight one eternal priest. And note the link between the priesthood of Melchizedek and the bread and the wine. Now, forgive the long quotes. So Melchizedek is a priest forever. Christ is the only true priest. Then someone might say, "Then, what am I doing here? What are all the priests that you see? It's not our priesthood. There's only one true eternal priest. It's the priesthood of Christ. We are called to participate in his priesthood. How do we know? Well, remember we said the liturgy book teaches us everything. If you look at page 105, the prayer of preparation that we looked at last week. You, O Lord, know my unworthiness, the priest talking, and unpreparedness, and my lack of meetness for this your holy service. This is your service, not mine. I've been called to participate in this service. You are the true priest. The priest on earth, the bishops are called to participate in the priesthood of Christ. There's only one true priest, and that is Christ. We are called to participate in his priesthood. Now, if you remember the basket, if you look at yourself this for a sec, Abuna picks one of the five. He holds it in his hand. It goes a sacrifice of glory with the wine. Sacrifice of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, blessing. Then on the lamb, at the back, he goes a sacrifice of Melchizedek, 
Melchizedek, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What's the link? Old Testament sacrifices. New covenant. This is the new sacrifice. Sacrifice of Christ. Once and for all, by an eternal priesthood. This is why on the back, we say Melchizedek. All these sacrifices are pointing to this sacrifice. So everything in the Old Testament is pointed towards Christ. It's like saying, Christ, Christ. Uh, Christ is here. Uh, don't worry about all the old ones. So all that long-winded discussion, just to get to this part. Okay? So what does this mean for me and you? Well, when the priest is offering, I remember the sacrifice of Christ. And I remember that he is the eternal priest. And I remember the sacrifice that he did for me. When you see Abuna doing that. Okay? It's not just a ritual that we just watch as spectators like we said last week. We said we, we, we recall the funny quote last week by uh, an Orthodox priest who said sometimes the only thing that we're missing in the liturgy is popcorn because it looks like people are just watching. But we're not watching, we're participants. Thank you. Okay? Now, if I may, I'll use this as a, an excuse to talk about who is the priest, who is the bishop, what do they do? If you please go to the first page. Okay. Firstly, the bishop is like the apostle or the connection to the apostolic succession that we have in our church. So you have Christ, he sends out the apostles. In Egypt, St. Mark. St. Mark lays hands, there's a next bishop, next bishop, next bishop, next bishop, Amber Suriel. So Amber Suriel is in our diocese, is the link to the apostolic nature of our church. He's the bishop of our church. The priest operates or prays on behalf of the bishop. So when any priest in our diocese prays a liturgy, he's praying this liturgy on behalf of Amber Suriel. Because the bishop can only be at one church at a time. Okay? St. Ignatius of Antioch. Let no one do anything that pertains to the church apart from the bishop. You should regard the Eucharist as valid, which is celebrated either by the bishop or someone whom he authorizes. So the bishop preserves the canonia, which we'll talk about, of the church, saying this is an authentic liturgy. At one stage, some people say that there used to be a, you know that triangle that we put on the prosperin, which we sometimes call a seal. I heard someone once say that that was the seal of the bishop to say that this priest is celebrating an official liturgy. Because the bishop of the diocese, we could say, is like the apostle of the place. Where the bishop is present, there let the congregation gather. Just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church, or the universal church. Catholic meaning universal. So we see the bishop as an icon of Christ. He's present in church as an icon of Christ. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the bishop walks in, and they have an elaborate vesting ceremony where he stands and they vest him with all his vestments. Someone might walk in to that or walk into a Coptic church and see what the bishop wears. We offer incense to the bishop and say, this is pagan worship. Yeah, they would say that if they don't understand where we're coming from. The bishop in the worship is an image of Christ. St. Cyril of Alexandria. Thus he is the Christ, the offerer, the priest, and the victim. Christ is the priest, the true priest. The bishop and the priest participate in his priesthood. Christ is all, the priest, 
the altar, the sacrifice, the lamb, the king, the man and God who did all of this for our salvation. It's like Father Gregorius was saying, how is Christ the altar? Well, on the Last Supper, he put bread in his hands. His hands are the altar. St. John Chrysostom, Christ is the sacrifice according to the body and the priest according to the spirit. He is the offerer and the offering. Okay? The last quote by Father Alexander Schmemann. It belongs to the bishop or to the priest to stand at the head of the people and it is his function or ministry to offer to God the worship of the church and to convey to the people the grace, the teachings and the gifts of God. He is in the liturgy the visible icon of Christ. Christ who has man stands before God uniting and representing in himself all of us and who as God gives us the divine gifts of forgiveness, grace of the Holy Spirit and highlight food of immortality. The Eucharist is known as the medicine of immortality. Okay. Sorry. Back to the page on Melchizedek. Two, chapter, two quotes there on the bread and wine. I won't read it. You could read it in your own time about the bread and wine. So we'll stop there for the offering part for now. We'll go to the next part in a second. So that long-winded quote, she... Apologies if it's too long, but I think it's important. That's why we're here. Okay. We have to remember what's happening in the offertory. We have to remember the sacrifice which Christ did. We have to remember that all these Old Testament sacrifices point to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and the eternal priesthood of Christ. That's why on the back we say a sacrifice of Melchizedek on the bread which we choose to place in the pattern that we pray over to be changed into the body of Christ. So what happens is the priest has just chosen. So now if you please go to page uh, 110. The priest has just chosen the, the lamb. Oh, and by the way, just to explain the oblation bread, just in case if you haven't heard it, it's a circle. Christ is without beginning, without end. There are 12 crosses for the 12 disciples. The middle part is called the Despoticon, or sometimes pronounced Spadicon. The lordly piece, or the piece of the master, which represents the Lord Christ. The five holes, the five wounds of Christ. One, two, three, four, five. Around, holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal in Greek. Agios Othios, Agios Ashiros, Agios Athanatos. Okay? Has three ingredients bread, yeast, and water. And I've spoken about that. I've got a couple of quotes on those ingredients in your quote sheet. But for time, we'll move on. So the priest then comes to the sanctuary. Okay? And the deacon pours a little bit of water into his hand. And he puts the water on the top and the bottom. Now, last week we said, let's not get too caught up into what happens and why in history. Because it's an endless question. Some people say it's done to get rid of any excess flour. Okay. Some people say that this was the time where the priest washed his hands and his hands were a bit wet, so he would just do that, okay, just over the, over the lamb. Some people look at it and say it reminds us of the baptism of Christ. That's okay as well. Okay. While he's doing that, he says a beautiful prayer in your liturgy book at the top. He says, Remember, O Lord, your Orthodox Christian servants, each one by his name and each one by her name, and he'll go and list every person who has asked him to pray for them or given a paper. That's why some priests take a long time in this part. Remember, O Lord, this is a prayer for himself. My Father, 
my mother, my brothers, and my kin in the flesh, and my spiritual fathers. Keep those who are living by the angel of peace, and repose those who have departed. Remember, O Lord, my weakness, even I the poor, and forgive me my many sins. Look at how the priest speaks about himself. I the poor, forgive me my many sins. Why is he saying all that? Because he knows this is not his priesthood, it is the priesthood of Christ. He has been called to this service and he should be terrified that he's called to this service and standing in front of the throne of God. Then he prays three litanies, which he commonly says. Remember, Lord, the peace of the one only Holy Catholic Church. Remember, Lord, the honor Father, Pope Tuadros II, his Panapostolic Liturgy, our Father, the Bishop Abba Suryad. Remember, Lord, our congregations bless them. He wraps the oblation in a veil. Some people like to say it reminds them of Christ being wrapped in swaddling clothes. Then puts the cross, and he says the first thing, after, apart from we ask you, Lamb of God, who carries the sin of the world, he then starts the next part of the liturgy. He holds the offering up. The deacons behind him also hold their offering up. The wine and the water with a candle. And he proclaims, Glory and honor, honor and glory to the all-holy trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What did he just do? Huh? Glorification of the Holy Trinity. The first thing that he does is glorification of the Holy Trinity. What was the first thing that the people did when we said we worship? Glorification. Okay, beautiful. Glory and honor, honor and glory to the all-holy trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace and edification to the one, only holy Catholic apostolic church. Then he says, remember our Lord, those who have brought unto you these gifts those on whose behalf they have been brought, and those by whom they have been brought. Everyone. Give them all the heavenly rewards. Then he goes around the sanctuary, and the deacons behind him will say, Pray for these holy and blessed gifts, our sacrifices, and those who bring them. Lord, have mercy. Okay? Question. What is the connection between saying, Glory and honor, honor and glory to the all Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then the next phrase, Peace and edification to the one only Holy Catholic Church. Has to be a link. Can't start off with glory to the Holy Trinity and then talking about the church. Has to be a link. Let's look at our quote sheet. Under the heading, the church. What is the church? Church is many things. Body of Christ, many definitions of chosen one. It denotes a select gathering which has come together and has been called towards unity as a result of a call or invitation by God. As a church, we are called and invited by God. Now, what's the connection between the Holy Trinity and the church? And we'll, st- we'll do the church part and we'll stop here and we'll move on to the rest next week. How do we understand what the church is? There's a word in Greek called kanonia, translated into communion, sometimes translated into fellowship, but communion is more accurate. Let's just read this paragraph. The church can be primarily understood in terms of kononia, in communion with God himself and among each other. Such an approach suggests that the church is by definition incompatible with individualism. Her fabric is communion and personal relatedness, which means you can't be a Christian on your own. By definition, you cannot be a Christian by your own. You have to belong to the church. Canonia, communion, needs to be seen as stemming from God himself, who is in his very being, canonia. Explain what that means in a sec. 
Canonia highlights communion of humankind with God and humankind with each other and the whole world. Vertical communion with God brings horizontal communion with each other. Vertical communion with God brings horizontal communion with each other. The question is, why did God create the church to be a place of communion? Why didn't he create the church to be a place of individualism? It's against who he is. Let's have a look. The church as canonia, communion, can be seen to stem from the canonia of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How do they exist? In communion. So God is in communion. He is communion by his very being as we have here. The church is a reflection of the Holy Trinity. That's why we glorify the Holy Trinity. If the Holy Trinity is in communion, in canonia, then what must we be? In canonia. That's why the priest says, glory and honor, honor and glory to the all-holy trinity, peace and edification to the one only holy Catholic apostolic church. He's trying to say, holy trinity as canonia, the church as canonia. Setting our orientation from the beginning of the liturgy. Let's keep reading. Canonia must then be placed at the very center of our understanding of the church. Furthermore, it can be seen that the church finds its identity and its communion with the triune God and hence, the church as canonia reflects the communion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We'll stop there. You could read the rest later. Okay? So the Holy Trinity existing in canonia, the church as an icon of the Trinity must exist in canonia, which means what? You can't be a Christian by yourself. The liturgy is starting off setting our direction. Glorification to the Holy Trinity through the church. Not glorification through the Holy Trinity by myself at home. Glorification through the Holy Trinity through the church. That's why the liturgy can't be celebrated without at least three people. Priest, deacon, congregation member. Then he says, peace and edification to the one only holy Catholic apostolic church. Let's use this as an excuse to say, why do we call the church one only holy and Catholic and apostolic? A few short points and then we'll finish off. Oh, just okay for time. Okay. Why do we call it one and only? The basis of the church's oneness is the, tri- is the Trinitarian God. There is one God. There is one Christ who is the head of one church. There is one spirit who continues to abide within the life of the church throughout the ages. But it doesn't take a genius to look around and to say, hold on, there's many churches. No, God created the church for it to be one. But due to things along history... That failed. Not on God's fault, on our fault. And like the last point in that section, divisions are a fundamental contradiction of God's intention and desire for the church. God never desires division. That's why we're always working, all the churches are trying to work towards unity. Oneness does not mean uniformity. It's a beautiful thing about the Oriental Orthodox Church. If you go to the Syrian Church, the Indian Church, Ethiopian Church, each of them has their own liturgical tradition, which is beautiful. Oneness doesn't mean that we do exactly the same style of worship. One church because there is one body of Christ and Christ is the head of the church. So it's very easy, one and only. Why is the church holy? The church is said to be holy because it has been gifted with God's holiness. Holy means something which is totally other, set apart from created reality, unwavering in his commitment to do good. The members of the church are given the opportunity to participate in the holiness of God. In Leviticus it says, 
for I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. The church is holy because God has bestowed it with holy gifts. And the holiness of the church doesn't mean that the people in it are sinless. Did you just read the prayer? For, you know anyone that says, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites? I would answer and say, of course we are. Because we're not perfect. It does, if you look at the prayers of a priest, how does he refer to himself? Sinful. Unworthy. And really, he's, he's by no means is he saying, I'm perfect, I'm good, I practice what I preach. He's a, a fellow struggler. That's why St. John Chrysostom says, the church is a hospital, not a courthouse. Communion is the antidote, the medicine. What does Catholic mean? Two meanings. Meaning one, according to the whole, full, integral, not deficient, not lacking in truth. Catholicity implies the fullness of God's presence within his church. Meaning number two is universal. The church spread throughout the entire world. The universal church. It's important at this point to mention that the church as canonia makes decisions together in a synod of bishops which represent the different places around the world. The same Holy Spirit that worked in the apostles works today in the church. That's why if the church decides to do something in its liturgical worship or in its practice, it's okay because it's done in canonia. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, beautiful quote, I won't read it because of time. Last thing, what does apostolic mean? The church's continuity and identity with the apostolic church, meaning number two, the mandate of the faithful to be like the apostles to be sent out. What do we mean by apostolic succession is what I was saying. You could trace our bishop, for example, Ambassuriel, all the way back to St. Mark. Ambassuriel was ordained by His Holiness Pope Shenouda III, blessed memory. Pope Shenouda was ordained by Pope Krollus. Go all the way back, St. Mark, sent out by Christ. That's why anyone in that line has authority to perform the sacraments or to pray the sacraments. If a lay person, or if if a priest leaves the church and just goes and sets up his own thing, that's not considered authentic. Where did he get that authority from? There's actually, um, if anyone's interested, there's a book called Becoming Orthodox by uh, Eastern Orthodox priest called Peter Gilquist, Eastern Orthodox Church in America. So there was these Bible crusaders that used to go around the different universities preaching, and they went around to the different universities, and they came back after a few years and found that each uni was doing a different thing. So the group said, all right, hold on, there's a problem here. Let's all separate. Each of us goes and studies what the early church was like. Someone took this part, someone took that part. They came back and they set up their own church. An Eastern Orthodox priest was walking past once or got in contact and he found that the spirit of what they were doing is very similar to what the Orthodox Church is doing, but they're missing one thing. What was that? Apostolic succession. Who gave them the authority to perform the sacraments? So they all got baptized. You can actually watch it online. Metropolitan Philip of the Antiochian Orthodox Church with about 12 American-born priests around the altar being ordained, I think in the 70s or the 80s. Do you recognize the sacrifice of other churches? I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest. What we can say is, at the moment, the church recognizes, for example, if an Eastern Orthodox Church person came and wanted to join the Coptic Church, and they were baptized by immersion, we wouldn't re-baptize them. We would anoint them with the Holy Chrism as a way of accepting them to the church.
But I don't think we would ever say that the Eucharist is not the real body and the blood of Christ. I'm talking about the apostolic churches. I'm not sure if we would say that. I'm not going to make a claim I'm not sure about. But I don't think we could, like, probably an easier way to sort of look at our tradition and say what we say about our tradition. We say that this is the true body and the true blood of Christ because the priest who prays it has the authority from his bishop who has received the authority all the way back to Christ to make this a canonical liturgy. The bishops are the successors to the apostles. They are responsible for maintaining the apostolic faith and preserving it from all error. So what's the bishop's role? The bishop's role is to preserve canonia. So it comes a heresy, like Arius, for example. Arius, you're not teaching the right thing. Calm down. No, I want to keep teaching. Arius, if you keep doing this. No, I want to keep teaching. Okay, you're out of the canonia of the church. Why? Because you're a threat to the canonia. So the priest and the bishop's role, part of it, is to preserve the canonia of the church. It's also the bishop's role to teach. And by extension, for the priest to teach, because the priest acts on behalf of the bishop. That's why in the liturgy, after the um, liturgy for the bishop, it says, and those who rightly define the word of truth with him. Let's stop there. That's a lot for today. Sorry, there's a lot in there, but I just have a really bad habit of not being able to get rid of quotes that I think are important. But if you think it's too much, just let me know after and I'll, I'll lessen the quotes for next time. But we got to the part where the priest has, the deacons have said, pray for these holy and precious gifts, our sacrifices and those who brought them. And the congregation is saying, Alleluia, Fai Pepi, or Alleluia, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let's continue next week. We'll probably be a bit quicker than this week because the offering is a, is a big deal. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's just pray before we leave.